Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We start tonight with that late breaking news that special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed former President Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, as part of Smith's investigation into Trump and his role in the January 6th insurrection. Now, I should say this is according to a single source, and it is being reported by CNN. NBC has not yet independently confirmed this reporting. But CNN reports tonight that Meadows received a subpoena for documents and testimony sometime in January. This comes just one week after we learned that special counsel Smith subpoenaed Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence. So clearly things are heating up. And beyond the fact that subpoenaing a former president's former chief of staff is a huge deal on its own, Mark Meadows in particular is quite a potential witness. Meadows was involved in the now infamous phone call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which Trump pressured Raffensperger to, quote, find 11,780 votes. And Meadows was in the Oval Office with Trump for a lot of the day on January 6th, and not to mention everything else he was privy to as the former president's chief of staff. Joining me now to discuss all of this and give us his thoughts, FBI general counsel, MSNBC legal analyst, the person that you want to talk to, the person you request desperately to hang out for another hour when breaking news like this happens, Andrew Weissman. It's good to see you, sir. Nice to see you. So are you, (laughs) Mike Pence has a subpoena Mark Meadows has a subpoena. To some degree, that all makes a lot of sense. What does that tell you about the special counsel's investigation and the alacrity with which Jack Smith appears to be moving? Remember when Jack Smith was appointed and everyone was concerned about how much this was going to slow things down? Yes. And I won't pat myself on the back because I, I know Jack Smith and I was like, uh, quite the opposite. I mean, he is a career guy who doesn't let grass grow under his feet. I mean, he is really, he, you know, just like Robert Mueller, he is really um, steeped in this idea that he has an obligation to go as fast as possible and responsibly. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, Mark Meadows makes total sense that you're going to put him in the grand jury for all the reasons you said. I mean, he is a key player and a key witness. He now has four things he can do. He can assert the, the same sort of executive privilege. Yeah. I think that's going to go nowhere very fast. There's Which all, he's tried to do before. He has done that before. And it's by all signs, both the district court and the D.C. Circuit may have already ruled on that issue. So that's really not going to be a winner. He can assert the Fifth Amendment. And then Jack Smith has to make a hard decision about whether he charges him or whether he tries to immunize him. Right. Or he can go in the grand jury. And if he goes in the grand jury and testifies, he can lie or he can tell the truth. Lying is going to be very hard for him to pull that off because there's so many people around him and there's so many documents to confront him. So if you're his lawyer and I've been a defense lawyer, like it is a hard thing. First, you can't counsel somebody to lie. (laughs) Well, there's that. Right. And then second, I mean, you're going to get caught. And so he could end up getting charged, not just with the underlying crimes of, you know, seditious conspiracy and obstruction of justice of Congress. Yeah. But he could actually get charged with the lying and obstructing of the grand jury. Yeah. So this is totally the right move if you're Jack Smith. You want Mark Meadows to feel pressure 
to come clean. Do you think Jack Smith is moving quickly because the judge in this case, Beryl Howell, who has been sort of the judge that's presided over all the Trump scandal, you know her well, is retiring and a new judge is coming in to oversee all of these subpoenas, et cetera? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. Um, (laughs) And the reason is, um, you know, Beryl Howell is, she's sort of termed out as as the chief judge. I mean, she'll still be a judge, but she won't be in charge of all the grand jury work. But the new Judge um, Bozberg is also excellent. Um, we dealt with him in a special counsel investigation from time to time. He was sort of the backup judge for um, Judge Howell. So I just don't think that that would be the reason. I think there are many, many reasons in terms of the investigation itself to be moving very quickly. And, you know, Pence and Meadows are sort of they're the, the two. people. Right? I mean, I if mean, I'm a, if I'm a special counsel, right. there are two guys I want to talk right. to. I mean, I, other three, really. Donald Trump is one of them. But right. Mike Pence and Mark Meadows are the guys. I mean, I think yep. I am old enough to remember the juncture at which Mark Meadows was cooperating with investigations into January 6th, the Congressional Investigation January 6th Committee. He handed over a lot of his text messages, which provided the, I think, I can, we can safely say the foundation of so much of the case that, that the committee laid out. Yeah, everyone at the time was thinking, oh, he's going to fully cooperate. I think this is a sign that that he didn't, uh, you know, he right. decided not to go down that route. One other sort of technical thing that's kind of interesting is um, Mark Meadows cannot be a target of the grand jury. And the reason I'm saying that is DOJ has a rule, which is that you cannot put a target oh. in the grand jury. So you wouldn't be able to, if, if, for instance, Donald Trump was the target, you wouldn't be able to subpoena him. And it's just an internal DOJ rule. So clearly somebody has decided that um, Mark Meadows may be a what's called a subject. He might be somebody, a, a person of interest, mm-hmm. <laughs> might be a way yes. of referring it to it. But he's not actually somebody who's targeted um, as looking to see whether you could charge him. Um, so that's sort of an interesting call that that because you would think he might be well, yeah. who's so exposed in terms of seeming to be the right hand man of Donald Trump. What 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 legal exposure does he have? I and mean, what kind of legal peril is he in? In, in Georgia, it seems like he's facing some almost certain legal so, peril. So my view is, like, everything that you're seeing with respect to Donald Trump, you're going to, if you, I was a prosecutor on this, I'd be thinking Mark Meadows is aiding and abetting and conspiring. So I don't see any daylight. And this is really going to put a lot of pressure for Mark Meadows to cut a deal. Right. Um, but I think before then, He's going to be asserting all any privilege he right. can, try and throw you know sand in the gears and delay this. But he may, at the end of the day, just assert the Fifth Amendment. And then that really leaves it to Jack Smith to decide, does he have enough evidence to charge him? Or is it so important to get his testimony that you're willing to immunize him? That's, that's a hard call to decide to do that with somebody who may be that culpable that you would give that kind of deal to him. But that's all sort of things that we're going to be watching to see, you know, what what he does. Does his behavior initially with Jan 6 and the committee cooperating give you any insight into his state of mind as it as it might, you know, inform the decisions he has to make now? It does. We had the same issue in the special counsel investigation with Rick Gates, who was the number two to Paul Manafort, where he started to cooperate and then backed off. And there's so much pressure 
in these kinds of cases from your conspirators. There's so much pressure in admitting wrongdoing in a huge public case. Just imagine if you had to, as an upstanding citizen, suddenly admit that you'd done something wrong and it was not just in a court, but it was going to be on every front page of you know, the United States newspapers. So it's very, very hard to get cooperators and get people to admit that because it's so public. And so I think there's just a lot of pressure on people in terms of what they're going to do. And that the way that you do, the way if you're in the government, you do that is you have to build that case. I mean, you have to sort of make it clear that the only choice is, you know, going to jail or or deciding cooperating. cooperating. Yeah. You know who built that case most effectively? His former aide, Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, she, well, what's great is, you know, she has some evidence, but not a lot of direct evidence right. with respect to Donald Trump. But you know who she has a lot of direct evidence about? Mark, Mark Meadows. Meadows. And so that's what he has to worry about, is that there are a lot of people who, who saw him, heard him. There's writings from him. So it's going to be very hard for him to decide, I'm going to the grand jury and I'm going to try and lie my way out of this. That's just like the phrase I'm going to the grand jury to lie is not so that I'm not a lawyer, but I wouldn't advise that. Uh, Andrew Weissman, thank you for your time and brilliance as always. It's great to have you just spend the whole night here. (laughs) Okay. Georgia, we were just talking about it. Of course, this news tonight regarding Mr. Meadows comes on the eve of the release of certain parts of the Fulton County special grand jury report on Trump's efforts and those of his allies to overturn the 2020 election results in the state of Georgia. Now, nationally, Fulton County, Georgia DA Fonnie Willis is best known for this investigation, the 2020 investigation. But in the state of Georgia, she has been making a name for herself prosecuting gangs. In the past two years, Willis has brought three RICO cases against a total of 66 alleged members of three Atlanta-area gangs. Racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization charges, that's the R-I-C-O in RICO, are notoriously difficult to bring. You have to prove that a group of people were involved in a pattern of multiple crimes and that those crimes were all related to one another. But RICO cases aren't all gangs and mafia members. The first case of Fonnie Willis's that got national media attention was a RICO case she brought almost a decade ago against a group of Atlanta public school teachers and administrators that Willis alleged were working together to cheat state standardized tests. Literally, Fonnie Willis brought RICO charges against teachers and won convictions. So one of the big questions in former President Trump's case is, will Fonnie Willis use the particular skill she has of bringing RICO cases against unlikely defendants? Specifically, will she bring RICO charges against Trump and his allies for their attempt to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia? Tomorrow, we get a sneak peek that might help answer that question. Emphasis on the word might. From May to December of last year, Willis's office had been using a special grand jury in Fulton County to investigate the matter. The special grand jury was specifically charged with submitting a report recommending whether anyone involved should be prosecuted for potential crimes. In December, that grand jury gave their report to a Fulton County judge, who in turn gave it to Fonnie Willis's office. Tomorrow, less than 24 hours from now, that same judge is going to release three chunks of the report to the public. Most of the report, including a, quote, roster of who should or should not be indicted, the judge has said, are, quote, for the district attorney's eyes only for now. But tomorrow, that judge will release the report's introduction and its conclusion and a section devoted explicitly to the grand jury's concern that some witnesses may have lied under oath during their testimony. Now, the judge has said explicitly that tomorrow's report will not be naming names. 
But that is obviously a huge deal considering who has testified before this grand jury. And that would be, drumroll please, Trump favorites, including Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman, Senator Lindsey Graham, and former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. These are just some of the dozens of witnesses that special grand jury could be accusing of certain crimes here. And one of the most potentially explosive questions will be, does the grand jury suggest that a group of people were involved in a pattern of multiple crimes, all related to one another, with the end goal of overturning the 2020 election? Could this be another Fonnie Willis RICO case? Joining us now is Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and professor at the University of Michigan School of Law. Barb, thank you for being here on this legal, this night of all things legal. I got to ask you, every time I read a story about Fonnie Willis, the word Rico is in the story because of her record on this and because of the speculation that maybe she will try and turn this into a Rico case as it concerns Trump and the 2020 election. Did, does that look like maybe what could happen to you? I mean, where do you land on that question? I think there's a very good reason, Alex, that people are talking about a RICO charge in this case. One is Fonnie Willis's historical use of them. There are some prosecutors who shy away from it, who find it needlessly complicated or maybe are fearful of it. Uh, you don't want to charge something that's so complicated that a jury uh, doesn't understand it. And so that in some ways you have you know, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by uh, needlessly complicating a case. But she has shown that she knows how to use it. And as you said, it's not just for the mafia, although that was what its original intent. The federal RICO statute was passed in the late 1960s during you know, the efforts to dismantle the mafia. But it has since been used for gangs, as Fonnie Willis had. She used it against teachers. I've seen it used against uh, political machines. And the, the idea and why it is so useful is it allows you to go after the boss, the person who doesn't get his hands dirty and allows his underlings to do all the dirty work. And you can bring together various schemes under one umbrella and charge the whole group. It's called the enterprise. The enterprise could be a street gang. The enterprise could be the mob. The enterprise could be a political campaign. And so it allows you to get everybody who's participating in that group, uh, as long as you can show that some member of the group agreed that two racketeering activities would be completed. That's what makes it a pattern. It could be fraud. It could be pressuring Brad Raffensperger to change the votes. It could be tinkering with machines. It could be uh, submitting false slates of electors. And so all of those schemes would be able to come under one umbrella and you'd be able to reach to the very top of the people who was, you know, sort of the puppet master of the whole organization. And for that reason, I think it's an attractive charge in this case. Uh, and since Fannie Willis has shown an ability and a fearlessness in charging it, I think it's a decent bet. You know, it's surprising when you when you go through the history of uh, investigations into Trump, how much the RICO charge comes up. I know that in the Manhattan uh, DA's investigation, uh, the former special assistant to the DA, Mark Pomerantz, who just wrote a book, um, mentions in the book that, that that they considered using a state level RICO charge against Trump in terms of the Trump organization, but ultimately decided not to. This is from the book. Pomerantz writes, the task of building out the proof on the whole pattern of enterprise corruption was simply too ambitious for the human and investigative bandwidth we had. Does that, I mean, how difficult, it, the Trump organization 
you know, if you listen to Michael Cohen's testimony, really does seem like an organized crime syndicate. The more information mm-hmm. we have, the election fraud piece of this seems much more complicated to prove in terms of RICO charges. I mean, how much of an uphill climb would this be for someone like Fonnie Willis if it was too much for Alvin Bragg and his DAs? It, it, it is complicated. And I think the thing you worry about is, um, do, can you help a jury to understand this kind of a case? Because it does have a lot of moving parts. Um, but there are ways to explain it to a jury. Um, and I think that it, it, it doesn't necessarily require additional manpower from the prosecutors. It does require, I, I think, a level of complexity and of understanding these things. And so I'm not sure I uh, fully credit Mark Pomerantz's uh, assessment there of the team in um, in Manhattan, but I think they're probably capable. And I think Fannie Willis's team is also probably very capable of bringing this case. In fact, she's shown that she is in other cases. Um, but it's a perfect tool in a case that maybe what she has here, where you've got somebody who is calling the shots, but allowing other people to be engaged on the ground in some of the illegal activity so that you can bring in all of those things and allow a jury to hear the full scope of criminal activity. You know, in this case, Trump himself was involved in that call to Brad Raffensperger, but you also have fake electors and tampering with voting machines. And if other people did those things, they might not ordinarily come in under normal joinder rules uh, in, in the rules of criminal procedure. But if you charge the RICO, then all of it comes in and a jury gets to understand the full scope of the criminal activity, which I think is really important because if you view acts in isolation, they may seem less important. But when you view them in their entirety, you see that this was a very wholehearted effort to overturn an election. Indeed, it was. What do you expect for the report tomorrow? Everyone is saying lower your expectations in terms of the amount of information you're going to get here. Do you think we'll be able to determine anything about the direction in which this is going, given the introduction and the conclusion and the other pieces that are getting released? I don't know. You know, Fannie Willis worked pretty hard to try to keep this under wraps, and which also signals to me that you know it seems that charges are likely. She wouldn't be fighting so hard to keep it quiet if if only the you know to to say no charges here, folks. The case is closed. So uh, she talked about protecting the fair trial rights of defendants, and so I think there's going to be something there. But if all we see is their introduction and their conclusion, um, and it's been scrubbed of names then uh, it seems like all we might learn a little bit is about about the scope of the investigation. But hard to say. It may say that, you know, we recommend charges against individuals. We'll see. And I'm especially intrigued by this section um, that will disclose witnesses who lied before the grand jury. I think that's really intriguing. Now, again, it won't include names, but the mere fact that they believe somebody lied before the grand jury is itself a, a serious crime. So, I'll be particularly interested in that section that gets uh, revealed tomorrow. We are going to be talking about it. Whatever is there, we are going to talk about it in detail tomorrow. Barbara McQuaid, thank you as always for your time. Thanks, Alex. Coming up, Ron DeSantis has opened up a new front in the war against woke. That is next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight, about 48 hours after a gunman killed three Michigan State University students and critically injured five others, students on the campus are holding a candlelight vigil to remember their classmates. The vigil tonight caps off a day of protests in East Lansing, Michigan. This afternoon, hundreds of students and parents gathered at the Michigan State Capitol for a sit-in. Students directly addressed members of the state legislature, urging them to do something to protect their lives as they try to learn. And the sad part is I only feel protected to come here today because I know there are important people here. Why can't I feel that safe regardless? It's only getting worse. It won't get better unless we start change. And that starts with you. It doesn't start with me. I can't do anything. I'm 20 and I'm broke. <laughs> I can vote. Exactly. I can vote. But my vote won't matter if you guys don't do anything about me putting you there. You need to talk to your peers. Michigan lawmakers are responding to that pressure from their young constituents by preparing to introduce three new gun safety measures that Governor Whitmer outlined in her State of the State address last month. State senators say they will introduce the bills soon and hope their Republican peers will support them. But the students today were clear. They are fed up. Their parents are fed up, their teachers are fed up, and they want action now. That urgency could also be heard in calls for action in Florida today, where hundreds of protesters gathered in Tallahassee for another kind of education protest to hold another elected official to account. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis indicated a potential expansion of his decision to ban the new Advanced Placement African-American Studies course, which is still in its pilot stage. DeSantis and Florida officials objected to the course's initial inclusion of contemporary themes, Black queer studies and Black feminism. The College Board has since stripped the course of those, those lesson plans and removed the works of scholars like Bell Hooks, ta Coates, and Kimberly Crenshaw, the woman who coined the term intersectionality. DeSantis is now threatening to sever Florida's relationship with the College Board and its AP courses altogether, potentially replacing all AP courses with other methods of conferring college credit to high school students in the state. Today, protesters marched from Holmes Bethel Missionary Baptist Church to the Capitol building in Tallahassee to say that they have had enough of the governor's so-called war on woke. Led by Reverend Al Sharpton, demonstrators held a rally at the state capitol to save our history and to give the governor a little lesson on American protesting. After 57 years of Jim Crow, it was education. Brown versus the Board of Education that kicked off in 1954 that inspired Rosa Parks to sit down a year later in 1955. If you would study history, Governor, you would have known to mess with us in education always ends to your defeat. You talk about 
is where woke died. We went from woke to work. And we gonna work on you, DeSantis, until we tell the whole story. Sharpton invoked a long history of civil rights protests in America and how they have moved the needle of progress. And today's demonstration served as a reminder to DeSantis that that pattern of protest and progress will continue, no matter how many history courses and books he tries to ban. In the meantime, there are still classroom libraries that have been papered over, subject matter that has been banned from classrooms, AP classes that are unavailable in the state of Florida, and the war on woke expanding nationwide. Joining us now is the renowned scholar and writer Kimberly Crenshaw. She is a professor of law at Columbia and the University of California and, of course, executive director of the African-American Policy Forum. Uh, Professor Crenshaw is a critical race pioneer, literally the person who's at the center of so many of these debates who coined the term intersectionality, which is a word that describes how race and gender and class and other traits intertwine. And both CRT and intersectionality have been removed from that new AP uh, African-American Studies course by the College Board down in Florida. Professor Crenshaw, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. Apologies for the long introduction, but we felt it was important. Um, Let me first just ask you about this term culture war, because the idea of a culture war implies that there are these two sides battling it out. But what this feels like is much more asymmetric. It feels much more like an attack. Do you think we need to refrain, reframe, how we are talking about what is going on, courtesy of Governor DeSantis and other Republicans who are waging this battle. I I couldn't agree with you more, Alex. And in fact, one of my uh, good friends, Jason Stanley, just wrote an op-ed in yesterday's Guardian arguing precisely that to call this a culture war is not only a misnomer, it is uh, actually disinformation. People aren't being told exactly what is happening. So you're right to point out the asymmetry uh, of this. You're right to point out that, you know, a culture war is is often a, a war of values. Uh, it, it can be, you know, op- warring op-eds. It's not a faction that basically takes the law in its own hands and determines that there are ideas, there are practices, there are policies, there are interests that can no longer be legally expressed in public institutions. That's what DeSantis has done. And that's what upwards of 17 states have done across the country, pursuing what they consider this anti-wokeness crusade. What it actually is, Alex, is a uh, retrenchment. It is a reaction. It is a response to the tremendous mobilization that happened in 2020 uh, in response to the killing of Breonna Taylor, uh, of, of, of George Floyd. And frankly, I think the fear uh, that many people saw when in every state there was a massive protest that involved people of all ages and all races. Anti-racism was becoming a majoritarian value that was demanding people to pay attention, not to just individuals who are racist, but to institutions and structures. And that's precisely why the backlash has gone after the frameworks that allow people to understand our history in order to change our present. 
Yeah, I think we have a copy of some of the op-ed that you mentioned, and I think it bears reading an excerpt from it. The passing of these laws signals the dawn of a new authoritarian age in the United States, where the state uses laws restricting speech to intimidate, bully, and punish educators, forcing them to submit to the ideology of the dominant majority or lose their livelihoods and even their freedom. My question to you is you use the word retrenchment just now. And to I, I would love if you could sort of frame up the tradition that this fits into in America, because I think that there was a contentment for at least some years, maybe in the early aughts or the mid, the mid, the mid aughts. I don't even the early part of the 21st century where, where it felt like these issues had been litigated. But this feels so retrograde, so very much in line with an America that is not 40 years old, but 150 years old, like Civil War America. That's where it feels like, at least from my vantage point, we are at. How do you contextualize this in terms of American history? Well, let's elevate some some concepts or some uh, sound bites that sound like they came from the 19th century, right? We've got uh, states' rights. People are basically making arguments that uh, our states' rights allow us to say that there are certain ideas that cannot be taught about your history. Uh, the idea that white rights trump uh, black realities, that white emotions and comfort are more important than access and equity to black people and other people of color. I mean, these ideas are old, old ideas. They're ideas um, that basically suggest that your civil rights violate my civil rights and there can only be my civil rights. So basically you don't get a chance to, to have your history told. You don't get a chance to vote for the people you want to vote for. You don't get a chance to be full 100 uh, percent citizens of this country. And the reality is that black freedom, freedom of people of color has always been a divisive concept. The very effort to actually create laws that eliminate the ability to advocate and to learn about racial justice under divisive concepts, that tells you everything you need to know about how retrograde this moment and this movement actually is. Critical race theory pioneer, writer, scholar, the woman at the center, literally, of all of this. Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, please come back to this show all the time. We will ask you to speak extemporaneously for long periods of time. We will never censor anything you have to say. All words are allowed. Um, we really appreciate your time and efforts. Thanks for joining and, us today. And Alex, if I may, I just want to tell people the, that Black scholars— have a, a new petition called a call to the college board to restore the integrity of AP courses. They'll be able to see it tomorrow on Medium. We will be looking out for that. Thank you for the heads up, Professor. We have more ahead tonight. Nikki Haley wants everyone to know that she is part of a new generation of leaders, but she is campaigning with some very old school bigots. Plus, fresh off a Justice Department subpoena, Mike Pence says he will not enthusiastically participate in the left's obsession with race, sex, and gender. Wait a second, the left's obsession? That is next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready... 
The Mel Robbins Podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. This is John Hagee. He is an American pastor and a televangelist with a history of making outlandishly offensive comments. In 2006, he claimed that Hurricane Katrina was God's way of punishing the city for allowing a gay pride parade. He once claimed that God sent Hitler to hunt the Jewish people as part of a divine plan to drive them back to the land of Israel. And he claimed women are only meant to be mothers and bear children. Pastor Hagee's beliefs are so controversial that in 2008, Republican presidential candidate John McCain was forced to publicly reject Hagee's endorsement as part of his campaign. But 15 years later, Pastor Hagee has found a presidential candidate who is willing to embrace him. Today, he gave the opening prayer for the presidential campaign kickoff for former governor Nikki Haley. I've got to give a shout out to the people who took the podium before me. Um, to Pastor Hagee, I still say I want to be you when I grow up. Thank you. With her campaign announcement today, Haley made clear that she was ready to be a warrior in the Republican Party's new battle over wokeness. A self-loathing has swept our country. Joe and Kamala even say America's racist. This is not about identity politics. I don't believe in that. And I don't believe in glass ceilings either. Strong and proud, not weak and woke. That's the America I see. Strong and proud, not weak and woke. This is the 2024 playbook. The Washington Post has reported that Donald Trump is now trying to play catch up with potential rivals like Ron DeSantis on the fight over race and gender in public schools, part of the Florida governor's war on woke. And today, former Vice President Mike Pence, another potential contender, held his own rallies on those very same issues in Minnesota and Iowa. The truth is, uh, the average American today is being dragged into a left-wing culture war that's invaded our schools, our colleges, and our workplace. Every day we're told that we must not only tolerate the left's obsessions with race and sex and gender, but we must earnestly and enthusiastically participate. Joining me now is David Drucker, senior writer with The Dispatch. David, thanks for joining me tonight. I just wonder if you can square for me the results of the 2022 midterms and, and the playbook that is emerging in the 2024 presidential race. Well, I don't know, Alex, if there's a way to square it, but it's a Republican presidential primary. And these candidates and potential candidates are going to compete for the base of the party. And that's always how it begins initially. Now, at some point, I could see this broadening out to have more general themes about the economy and national security. And, and, and we saw Nikki Haley today in Charleston, South Carolina, touch on that. 
But one of the issues that is driving the Republican base today and and even Republicans beyond the base who coming out of the coronavirus pandemic were concerned with uh, public schools and, and what their kids were being taught are very interested in this topic. And interesting, it is not a topic that we discussed in the 2016 Republican primary or the 12 Republican primary or the 2008 Republican primary. This is really new, but there's a reason that these candidates and potential candidates are focusing on it, because that's where a lot of the energy and attention of Republican voters are today. It, no matter what kind of election results they may actually you know, result in in, in, in terms of a general election. I, I, I do wonder why, with the exception of Mike Pence, the two declared candidates, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, have not mentioned what used to be an old standard in the sort of cultural conversation, which was the the war on choice, the the question of reproductive freedom, the, the big A, abortion. Um, you know, the right has won that battle in a lot of ways. There are new fronts that emerge every day. But why do you think Haley and Trump aren't talking about abortion? Is that a, a, are they sort of nodding towards the sort of reality on the ground in terms of voter support for anti-choice measures? Well, listen, I think if what we saw from Nikki Haley today is that she did uh, pay homage to the abortion issue. Donald Trump, we know, has, has expressed skepticism in going further uh, then the Supreme Court has gone in terms of overturning Roe versus Wade. And it's not a, an issue that he feels is, is generally helpful to Republican prospects at the ballot box. I do, in fact, expect uh, over the course of this presidential primary uh, to have Republican candidates compete, at least some of them, over who can take this issue uh, to the next level, right? Because there's a debate in the Republican Party right now about whether there should be a national ban versus states' rights and the classic Republican position that Roe versus Wade should be overturned, and then states, whether blue or red, should make their own decisions on abortion closest to the people uh, that elect them at the legislative level. And I do think we're going to see some Republicans call for Congress to engage uh, to implement a, a national ban on abortion rights, and I think some will promise that if they're elected, they'll do that or they'll push for that. Obviously, they, they need Congress to go along with it. Others will will talk about the need for states' rights and saying that, well, you know, I oppose abortion rights. I don't think a national ban is 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 proper. So I think we're actually going to see that. And I think it's going to be one of the more interesting debates in the Republican Party as this primary unfolds. I think this issue in 2024 could really work for Democrats in that this is no longer hypothetical or theoretical. This issue about judges in the Supreme Court, as the court continues to evolve, other judges are getting older. <laughs> we know that that they don't last forever. And I think that it could be a very motivating issue for voters that are, are concerned about abortion rights as we head into a general election in 2024. Yeah, I think it, it was a motivating issue. It was the number two issue on voters' minds, according to NBC exit polling in the 2022 midterm. So it's kind of a proven winner for Democrats. But if Republicans want to relitigate it in 2024 or keep pushing for a federal ban, I'm sure Democrats would love to have that debate on the national stage. David Drucker, thank you for your time tonight. Anytime. Thank you. Coming up, Democrats are flipping the script on election denialism. We'll tell you how. That's next. It is now February of the year 2023, but election denialism is still very much alive and well. And with the prospect of a presidential election on the horizon, it has the potential to get worse. 
to confront the hundreds of election deniers who are still out there. Elections officials across the country are now leading the charge to combat misinformation about election integrity. According to The Washington Post, in Arizona, the new Democratic attorney general has repurposed a unit that, under her predecessor, focused on election fraud, and it will now focus on voting rights and ballot access. In Michigan, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is working to toughen penalties against those who threaten elections officials. Benson is also drafting legislation that would make it a crime to knowingly spread misinformation about elections, comparing the legislation to laws barring deceptive marketing practices. The way Benson sees it, individuals who intentionally spread misinformation that then leads to threats, or worse, targeting elections officials, are just as culpable and should be held culpable just as those who are actually exercising the threats themselves. Down in North Carolina, the Board of Elections is considering the removal of county elections official who, without evidence of irregularities, refused to certify the 2022 midterm results. After more than two years of unabashed election denialism, the cavalry is coming to combat the big lie at the state level, which, if you like democracy, is highly anticipated and also probably very good news. Joining us now to help us figure out whether it is indeed good news is Mark Elias, voting rights attorney and founder of Democracy Docket. Mark, thanks for making the time. Um, How heartened are you by these measures that are being announced at the state level across the country? So, look, I think they're an important first step, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. As you said, we have been having election denialism for two years. And at each stage, we have thought, well, it will get better. You know, after Donald Trump loses, it'll get better. After he litigates his 65 cases and loses them, it'll get better. Certainly after Republicans witness the the violent insurrection at the nation's capital, the fever will break and it will get better. After they lose the midterms, it has to get better. But the fact is, it's not getting better. So I am happy to see that Democratic election officials and Democratic office holders are pushing back. But I think we need to be very realistic about the threats that we face. They are persistent, they are escalating, and they are coming from one side of the aisle. What about, I mean, enforcing some of these laws? First, there's a question of how you enforce them, right? Like Benson's legislation making it a crime to knowingly spread misinformation about elections. Is that enforceable? And then there's the sort of counter argument that the more you punish folks like this, the more a kind of almost the more it makes them dig in their heels. Right. The more at least when you talk about misinformation on social media, you, you try and you try and censor it. You try and, you know, prevent it from spreading. And, it, and the virus finds its way to another host. So, I mean, when we talk about efficacy, yeah. where do you grade these things? Yeah. So, look, I think that the, it's hard for me to address the speech content stuff because it is tricky with the First Amendment. I'd want to see what the text are. But there are things that we can do to really push back against an election denialism. You know, you said that there that the bill is aimed at people who provide misinformation. It's not people. It's Republicans. The election official in, in North Carolina was a Republican. Like, we need to be able to acknowledge that this is a not a bipartisan problem. The problem we have is that one party is hijacking a system of elections that rely on bipartisanship, right? They rely on Democrats and Republicans certifying elections together. 
They rely on Democrats and Republicans observing elections together. And they assume that at the end of the day, everyone has a common interest in seeing that the accurate results are tabulated and certified and put forth. But that just isn't the case. So the measures I think we need to focus on are the ones that are that that sort of do away with the nostalgia of the pageantry of democracy that once was and focuses on the challenges of democracy that are today. They focus on making sure that county officials have to certify elections whether they like the results or not. And if they don't, they will get sued. And if necessary, they will go to jail. Like we need to be much more intentional about bringing to bear the the resources and the, the, the steps necessary to enforce the laws to make sure every ballot is counted and accurately certified. Do you think at this point it matters if any of these um, new laws are put into place that any of them have Republican support. Does that matter at this point if you have a Republican uh, state attorney general uh, or attorney general that is is willing to sort of go out on a limb here and try and reform a broken system as far as the party and misinformation? No, I don't. And that's actually one of the things that that is always frustrating to me. Right now, Alex, as we sit here, there are 17 states. More than half of the American public lives in a state that is where that has a Democratic trifecta, which means it's a Democratic governor and Democratic legislature. Those legislatures and governors can act uh, in concert to implement these provisions. They won't target target every um, battleground state, every swing state, but they will create a momentum and a standard just in the way in which DeSantis and his cronies have acted in partisan fashion to create standards on the other side. So I don't think we should be wringing our hands trying to find some magical unicorn Republican. We should be moving forward with the business at hand. There are no unicorns. Mark Elias, thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate your time. Thank you. That's the show for tonight. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.